When we got in there, it was quite a damaged place. It was still the remnants of the war, of the killings. It wasn't unusual to, when I was looking for warehouse spaces and things like that, to find bodies still in the warehouses. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to funerals quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Welcome to Life on the Line. This is our second veteran conversation of Season 6 between Sharon Maskeldare and today's guest, Brigadier Mick Burgess. Their conversation covers some confronting stories from a mixed time in Rwanda, including encounters with child soldiers to his time as an instructor, a linguist, and the work he's doing today with the Remembrance Driveway. In today's podcast, we meet Brigadier Mick Burgess, who served in the Army for 38 years with an extensive career in defense industries as well as in uniform. And his journey has taken him to Africa, to Southeast Asia, and he's undertaken extensive activities back here in Australia too. Mick, thanks very much for joining us on Life on the Line. Uh, My pleasure to be here, Sharon. Thanks very much for the invitation. So tell us a bit about how you came to join the military. So I grew up on a small farm in a, in a small country town out in New South Wales. And there's a couple of influences, I guess, that brought me to joining the army. And that was farm that we lived on was a soldier settlement block. So it was uh, previously owned by a guy, Private uh, Jack Wicks, who won the military medal twice. Uh, the second time was at the Battle of Heberton in 1918. And so he actually named his block Heberton after that particular battle. So we had that sort of influence in our background the whole way through, but also I had a great uncle, Eddie Radford, who was in the 3rd Battalion and died uh, at Menon Road. And so his name's on the the Menon Gate uh, Memorial at at the moment, which is great. But we had these sort of influences uh, around the district that were um, all sort of played into it. But growing up on a small farm, you know, there's... Your future is not there. I was the middle of uh, seven children, so we um, we, we had a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, friends just in the family and up and down the road, but there wasn't... I didn't see myself spending my life uh, on the land. I could do it, but it's not something that I wanted to do. So I looked for other opportunities. And I had these, um, these influences, uh, a couple of friends as well, uh, one of the neighbours was in the Army Reserve. So there, there were all these coalescing of, um, I guess, uh, influences throughout that. And I'd spoken a little bit about it with uh, my mother and father. And then one day there was an advertisement in uh, in the newspaper for Duntroon. And my mother sort of leaned over and said, well, why, why don't you join? You know, why don't you have a go at that? Why don't you join that? And to be quite honest, I didn't... It looked a bit... Um, I don't know, it, it didn't look like it would be me. Um, 
in in those pictures and uh, and, and she said to me very clearly uh, never underestimate what you can do have a go at it and see how far you can get and you'll learn a lot along the way so uh, it was really her influence that made me fill out the forms and um, and and to have a go at that and drop in to see the recruiting centre and those sort of things and go through the interview process. And, you know, coming from my background, I didn't give myself a great chance of getting into, uh, into Duntroon. I'd applied to do engineering and was doing quite well at school in those subjects. They accepted me and, um, yeah, I was, I was off to Duntroon back in... Uh, 1984, which was a which was a pretty a pretty big step to be quite honest. I'd borrow forty dollars off my dad so I could join the army, so I could actually get there and have some money. I'd just blown all the money that I had backpacking around New Zealand with a couple of friends. Um, so I turned up actually pretty broke and unprepared for it. But uh, like everybody who got there, you sort of get there and, and and get into it pretty quickly. It's full on. You don't have much time to to think about it. So an advantage from the sounds of it is that your family were fully supportive because obviously for some people joining the ADF they don't necessarily have that that family support behind them but you clearly did from the get-go. Yeah absolutely my parents were uh, quite supportive and I think they really wanted to know that I had chosen something which uh, which had a future which had a, a longer term future it wasn't something that would um do it. I had applied to go to uni to do engineering, to go to teachers college, to join the police force. Army was the uh, the first ones who came back and offered me a position, so I thought I should take it, and uh, and, and I did. So tell us about that experience at the Royal Military College, Duntroon. Back then, 1984, what was it like? Uh, certainly no mobile phones, no computers. Uh, those sort of things hadn't uh, really moved into society yet but look it was it was very uh full-on it was noisy it was exciting i'd spent the last two years at a boarding school in sydney for what i what we used to call the poor farmers kids uh but it was for children generally who didn't have year 11 and 12 in their hometown so a lot of the families were on uh, government assistance to send their children to boarding school so that environment of living together being busy playing sport all doing things together a whole group of guys young boys doing that um, was very similar to um, the boarding school environment except for the nature of what we were doing around military training etc some of the early stuff like learning to iron and things like that were always you know difficult for everybody uh, but I think and, and a couple of uh, my friends have said this uh, as well as when we went out into the field environment, uh, the country boys really knew what they were doing. They could shoot, they could live in the dirt, they could, they could, you know, walk for miles. It was hot and sweaty, but we, nobody seemed to care. And so, um, I think it, it, that part of it we we did actually quite enjoy a lot more. You mentioned lots of young men together. Were there any females there? Uh, back then, no females. Uh, I don't think it started going being integrated into the Portsy system, which was a separate system for a short course uh, at that stage. But they didn't join into the military college until uh, eighty seven, uh, when when Ports when the Portsy system closed down, when that short course closed down. So yeah, eighty four, eighty five was spent at the Royal Military College. Then the Australian Defence Force Academy opened, so we all moved across there to finish our degrees. Uh, and then come back to the Royal Military College to do our military training for 12 months. And you were assigned a corps 
or did you actually get a say in that? So I chose my core. We did get a choice. We had to put in four choices. I chose Ordnance Core as my first course ha- choice, having uh, looked at the other cores and, and done all, all of the exercises and worked out what what I liked doing, what I was interested in, and also what I thought would be a longer-term future for myself. So I actually thought about all those things up front. And so I chose Ordnance Core, which is supply logistics, uh, supply chain specialists. Um, and so that's where I went. Notably, you mentioned there that that was a deliberate choice on your part. Did you know then when you entered the Australian Defence Force back in 1984, were you already thinking about that long-term game plan in terms of the transition and what you might want to do in the civilian world? Not at the very outset. I started out doing engineering. As an engineering uh, student, I found out I wasn't bad at rugby. Uh, I wasn't a particularly good engineering student, so I switched to science and uh, finished up doing a science degree, which was interesting because it had some other influences in my career path as a result of that. It was probably around about the you know, three and a half year mark that I really started to think seriously about what my longer term future in Army would be and what my, my longer term goals uh, personally would be as well. So when you completed your training at the Defence Force Academy and Duntroon, what was your first posting and, and how did that perhaps compare with what your expectations had been? It was very interesting because my first posting was to a small unit in, uh, in Brisbane which looked after all of the vehicles for, um, for the Army in Queensland. Uh, only myself and one private soldier, I think it was, uh, hadn't been to Vietnam and hadn't been in the same unit in Vietnam. So there was this massive uh, culture already existing within the company, even the civilian uh, warehouse storemen and, and in um mechanics had all been in Vietnam together and knew each other very, very well. So here I was walking into that as a, uh, a junior lieutenant and um, and all of my men were very, very senior. And, and uh, so I knew what I had to do and that was to ask a lot of questions and learn a lot and, um, and, and really try to work out where I could add value into the system and provide the leadership piece uh, that, um, that they needed, uh, but would be very, very respectful of their experience and their, um, their, their culture that they built up over time together. Yeah, so it was an interesting first posting for me, that's for sure. As a young lieutenant, dealing with people, as you say, that had their own culture, their own shared and shared lived experiences in a particularly complex environment, how did you deal with that, given that you were such a, a young man perhaps lacking some life experience. You're right. I mean, it's very, it is quite confronting because some of these people had been um, you know, in the army longer than I had been alive. Uh, and so it, you really do have to humble yourself a little bit and not think that you are the great leader who's going to lead them all to success. It's about taking a step down and learning and being respectful and learning their ways uh, and and then you know providing those little bits of those, those key areas of leadership that they need uh, as well, and and that they start to warm to uh, after a little while as well. You say start to warm to you. 
Did you perhaps learn then something about how to influence people and how to build that trust? When did you start to realise that perhaps you were cracking it, that you were actually achieving what you wanted to achieve? Yeah, I think that was probably around about a month into it when they actually started to listen to my ideas and accept that I might have something to say and even ask for my opinion on some things um, because I hadn't uh, tried to do that from day one, that I had walked around the yard, that I had spoken to uh, you know everybody from, from private soldier uh, up all, all the way through the sergeants and warren officers to get to understand them, uh, their key, um, I guess, interests as well as their experience. And, and so I could draw some of those things together to, to make some um, uh, minor changes, but, but certainly uh, make the smoother running of the unit. Uh, it was good fun. Now, relatively early on in your career, you deployed to Rwanda. Tell us how that came about. Did you have much notice that you're going to be going? Did you understand the complexities of that environment? What kind of preparation did you receive? Yeah, none. Uh, basically, uh, it was it was pretty fast. I'm unsure how I was chosen. Uh, I said I did a science degree and then subsequently gone back after a couple of postings to university and uh, done a, a graduate diploma in applied science, specifically around food, food technology. So that was a posting within the army, and that was a posting that I was then doing. Uh, when this role came up for Rwanda. And um, they wanted somebody who had a, a background in food who could help manage the food contracts for the United Nations. So that was, I believe that's how I was chosen. Um, I was given three days notice to uh, get a passport and get on a plane to Townsville. Um, I was then told to go down to the medical center and get some injections uh and while i was down there i had to do a very quick interview with um the age newspaper in melbourne and uh the next day uh, there's a photograph of me on the uh, on the front page of the age um two days later i was on a plane into um having sorted out my my family told my wife it would be all right and uh, two young children uh and then uh, and got on a plane to townsville and i was in townsville for about five days and they just had made a decision to send an advance party to Rwanda. So uh, a couple of us were working on the United Nations headquarters. So we all deployed with the uh, advance party as well as some um, uh, some infantry support and uh, some of the key medical people uh, had moved across early as well. So uh, it was it was a pretty rapid deployment for me uh, and, and not much time to get organized at all. So uh, we making it up as we went along, but we, we got there. What had you heard about from a media perspective, though, in terms of what was happening in Rwanda? Because it had significant international news attention. There was a lot of fear around what was happening there. There was a lot of confusion. People didn't understand the the specific nature of that ethnic, very violent conflict between the Hutus and the Tutsis. What did you know about it when you went overseas? To be honest, very little. We knew what we knew from uh, SBS News, predominantly a little bit on, on the world uh, media who were covering it, but there was very little internal um, media communications coming out of the country. So a lot of it um, was based on what 
perhaps what the BBC world was uh, was covering. Um, and also the fact that the French had then placed a uh, humanitarian zone uh, in the middle of the country um, after about 100 days of the conflict uh, occurring. So it, the, a lot of the death uh, and destruction of the, company, the country had occurred in that initial period. Uh, and so the humanitarian zone had been uh, put in place by the French, and then we moved in sort of straight after that. But clearly when we got there, it was, um, uh, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of language training, for example. We didn't have, um, I think the, the best source of information was, um, uh, you know, the, the, the travel books that they had on, on Rwanda. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of free available information. There was no internet on which to find these things. Um, and, and communications was actually very difficult. So. When we got in there, it was quite a damaged place. There was still the remnants of the war, of, uh, I guess, of the, of the killings. It wasn't unusual to, when I was looking for warehouse spaces and things like that, to find bodies still in the warehouses and, uh, and then to, uh, to provide a burial for them, uh, things like that. So there was a number of this that occurring. The hospital that we were moving into or that the uh, medical people were moving into was very destroyed they uh, they had to do a lot of work to clean up the hospital themselves in order to be able to work in it so it was terrible myself and the other guys who were working on the united nations headquarters we actually were, get, were given a room with uh with a it was basically a hotel room in a very rundown old hotel but we uh, lived and worked in uh, in that hotel room for two weeks before we moved into any other uh, accommodation uh, and, and it was very basic there was no running water there was no flushing toilets there was no uh, there was no food or anything so, like, so we were living on ration packs and we literally existed within that compound for about uh, two weeks before we finally moved out into some other more suitable accommodation what then specifically was your role in those very arduous conditions as you mm. described them? So my role was to set up and uh, and then run the contract for the food initially for um, for the peacekeeping force that was moving into Rwanda. So at that stage we hadn't, uh, as, as well as a number of the other logistic aspects, and there was a few other uh, logisticians on the headquarters from Australia with me. Um, and... It was interesting because when we, they wanted to put or they'd identified locations for um, the various peacekeeping forces to come in and occupy around the country, uh, no one had done a logistics check on it to see if we could get a truck in there, to see if we could put containers in there, to see if we could put, you know, get food to them, to see if we could get water to them, that sort of thing. So I basically um, went and did it myself. Uh, so I had uh, a rifle and a pistol and, and a couple of days of uh, food and water and, a, and a, a radio that didn't work outside of the city. Um, and so while the UN had a couple of points around the country where I could drop into and check back in, uh, most of the locations I had to go and survey, I didn't have anything. So I would tell the guys, uh, literally, um, if I'm not back in two days, give me another 24 hours, but I'm going to this location, this location, and this location. And so I would go out uh, through the country and, and 
set up the locations or, or you know make sure that they were logistically supportable. Um, bribed my way through checkpoints and you know uh, and, and when I say bribed, I mean I would I would pull up at them and they'd have twelve year olds and fourteen year olds uh, you know child soldiers on the on the checkpoints and things. Um, and it was you know I couldn't speak French particularly well. Um, they couldn't speak English, so. You know, I'd provide them with, I always carried cigarettes with me. So uh, you'd sit and stand there and give them a few cigarettes and uh, some biscuits and some water. And um, and then, you know, they'd have a bit of a look at the vehicle and, and your rifle and your equipment, things like that. And then eventually they'd let you go. And, and so we, this was repeated sort of several times a day to get into where I needed to be. Uh, but I did build up a, quite a good uh, rapport with a lot of the checkpoints so that over time, I could move through them quite quite easily, uh, and they, they were quite respectful. I was surprised at how respectful they were of uh, of that. What was the threat? Because you must have experienced that sense of threat everywhere you went. Always under threat, and uh, I think probably the biggest threat was child soldiers with uh, poor weapons handling uh, discipline. Uh, they were quite often uh, when they pulled you up at a checkpoint, the first thing that they would do is stick a rifle through the window. Uh, straight at your head and um, and look into your vehicle, uh, you know, sort of do an inspection of, of the interior of your vehicle like that. Um, I would often wear, ride with my pistol sort of tucked under my uh, my legs so that as the uh, as the rifle barrel came through the window, I would put my pistol up and just push it away from uh, from my head. Uh, but they they would often you know you'd be driving past them or they would drive past you and they would literally just point weapons at you as you went past. So I mean there was a lot of threat. We had um, we pulled up on the side of the road one time because there was just thousands of people running down off a hill and um, and across the road like a, like a stampede. Uh, and so they were doing a a um, camp clearance which often included shooting wildly in all directions to disperse the refugees out of the uh, out of the camps um i won't say we were shot at i would say we were shot near on, on, a, on a couple of occasions but um so yeah i mean it was still very um unsafe while we were there how did you manage that given that you were still a relatively young officer it's a lot to be exposed to well before the age of 35 at this point, right? Yeah, I think it was about 28 or 29 when that happened. Um, it is a fair bit to be exposed to, but to be honest, you work on your training, you work on your personal, I guess, confidence and presentation in those, uh, in those moments and make sure that you do the right thing continuously through it. Um, it does have an impact on you. I don't think anybody came away from that deployment without having you know, taken away some um, big influences on their life and how they how they think about life and people and situations and danger as a whole. But you do tend to live on a fairly high level of adrenaline when you're in operations anyway, and I think that helps you to cope with it. So what for you then was one of the legacies of that particular deployment? So... A young girl came to work for us. She was about 19 years old, and we'd been look, on the lookout for somebody to help us in the office. 
and through one of the guys that we uh, local guys that we knew uh, he recommended this friend who had come back and she had good English and she could work with us and so uh, her name was Natalie Carrera she came into the office she was exceptional uh, helping us out she could work computers she could do she had a lot of skills her father had been a um, in the diplomatic corps for Rwanda in uh, Japan and she lived there for eight years. She spoke about five languages fluently. She was an incredible um, person and, and a lovely person. Uh, so she worked for us and indeed uh, predominantly to me for about four months. And then uh, she worked for the next contingent uh, of Australians who who had the same roles um, for the following six months. During which time um, I'd made a decision that we would do everything we could to get her to Australia as a refugee. Uh, her father had been killed. Her mother uh, was still there, but her brother and sister had already been accepted as refugees to uh, one to Canada or one to uh, Brussels. So, you know, we then made the effort to get her uh, across to Australia as a refugee, which we were successful in. Uh, she came and lived with uh, me and my family for about six months before she got a job in uh, in Sydney. And she was up there for about 12 months when she met a very nice young man, uh, Tillo, and uh, eventually they got married and they now live in London, uh, closer to his family. And they have a young boy, but she was very much part of our family and is considered as a sister to my children and yeah, very, very close. The reason that you know we were so moved by her uh, her situation was that she had been trapped in the university during the massacre period uh, in Rwanda and had in fact narrowly escaped being killed on five separate occasions. Her and a boyfriend at the time managed to escape. Uh, I think there was five of them. They escaped across the border eventually into, uh, into Congo, then spent about six months outside the country until it was safe enough to come back in. And that's when, uh, that's when we were fortunate enough to meet her. Myself and uh, three of my children have all visited her uh, in London. She has a young son. They're very happy. That's an incredible thing that you do, a huge legacy. It's very fulfilling that we were able to make such a difference to one person's life, uh, but that was sort of one person we were able to help. There were so many others who we weren't able to help in that way, but we were able to make, I guess, a contribution to a more successful country uh, by being there and by being good to people while we were there. And and Rwanda has come along massively. I mean, it, it is an amazing place now. It's a, a far cry from what it was back in 93, 94 when we were there. Now, on your return to Australia, you then, among other postings, worked as an instructor back at the Royal Military College Duntroon. What was that like, having had so much experience by that point in terms of deployment overseas, being to some degree, I imagine, a changed person? What did you bring back to that instructing role? That was a, a really interesting uh, time for the college as a whole. There were several instructors who had been to Somalia or to Rwanda. There were a number of students who uh, and cadets who had, had been uh, to Somalia and Rwanda. Uh, so we had a big mix and it was, a, I guess, a, a quite a difference in experience between the people on staff. You do have a more direct 
reference point when you're when you're talking about leadership, when you're talking about how things are put into practice on operations versus what you're learning in a textbook in a classroom environment. And so you can bring more realism to the uh, to, to the classroom as well. Um, in terms of leadership style, it, it certainly means that you have to adjust your leadership style to that college environment, but also to give the cadets themselves, uh, I guess, exposure to different leadership styles. And uh, I think that's quite important as well. And when you were back at Duntroon, having been through that process yourself, what were you able to to bring in terms of a refreshed sense of perspective and indeed having that, that consciousness that you'd once been a trainee, you were now an instructor? How did that sort of shift for you? There's certain things about going back to the college that don't change. You can't help but march a bit smarter and swing your arms slightly higher when you uh, when you hear the music play on a on a Friday for example but uh, it's an amazing place to be both a cadet and an instructor when you go back there you understand that the army as it operates is quite different to the college environment and how it operates and so being able to let the cadets know that you know what they're experiencing now is more about personal discipline and group discipline rather than and learning rather than the application in the army environment on a day-to-day basis but that their standards need to be higher much higher than you know what they have or what they expect of their own soldiers um, and that they hold themselves to the to the highest level of account in all areas uh, in their um, once they do graduate and go out and lead soldiers because that's what they will be what, what will be expected of them. Now around this time you became interested in learning another language. So how did that come about? Because to become a linguist in the defense force it's a significant commitment, isn't it? It is a massive commitment. It is 12 months of your time and it is going back to learning things like a child even though you're in your early 30s. I was coming out of the Royal Military College, uh, which is you know a very high profile posting, and they were looking for um, you know I was getting promoted to major, and they were looking for a uh, a good step up for me into into the next posting, uh, but with a view to how and what I will be doing in my future career. Now Australia has uh, arrangements with a range of countries where we do military exchanges, and one of these is Thailand, and to get a posting to Thailand for one of these exchanges, you need to know the language, but you have to have been tested and passed that language training. Now, I did mine back as a cadet. You do your testing as a cadet, and so I had no idea what my uh, what my test results were, but they rang me and they said, um, yes, so you've been selected to go to language school. Would you take that? And I, th- I was thinking, oh, that'd be lovely. I could learn French or I could learn, you know, something exotic language. Anyway, they came back and they said, now you're learning Thai. And I said, I think I'm tone deaf. I, I, it's a tonal language. I'm not sure how I'm going to go. And they said, well, according to your results from six years ago, yes, you should be able to, uh, it's probably longer than that, you should be able to pass the course. So I went to uh, Point Cook to the language school. It is literally like going back to learning to read and write and speak a different language and having to learn your numbers and your colours and everything at a really basic level, 
having the workbooks of a um, of a grade one student to you know practice tracing your letters. They have their own script, and then learning a language that is five tones. So one word can have five different meanings depending on how you say the word, uh, and you can change the meaning of a sentence completely by getting the one tone in one word wrong. So it was pretty hard going. Uh, I, I struggled with it, to be quite honest. I think my brain wasn't as soft and spongy as a five-year-old's or a two-year-old's, but uh, I got through it. And um, I actually went on another posting before I went to uh, to Thailand. So I was posted to Darwin as a company commander up there looking after the logistics um, support for the brigade in Darwin. And then at the end of that uh, posting, the Timor support was, uh, was becoming a, a thing. So I was approached to go to Timor for a few months prior to moving to, uh, to Thailand for my posting. So moving to Thailand actually as a linguist, someone that could speak the language and then attending Commander's Staff College there. What was that like? The Thais are amazing people and they're very, very accepting of differences in language capability, etc. You know, but it is quite full on. You are living in the Thai language from the time you get up in the morning until the time you go to bed. So I would get up, I would go to uh, go to classes. I'd be in class all day, which is all in Thai. Um, I was giving presentations in Thai. I was being part of syndicates, having to work together with them. And then you would come home and you'd have to do your homework. So I was, the course I was doing was uh, preparation for higher promotion. As I said, you know, they send a couple of guys over here each year. We send uh, some over there from Army, Navy and Air Force to do their course, uh, but you do have to, we do it We do it for other countries as well. Being relatively proficient at the language is, is really, really important. Uh, you also have to integrate with them, with the other classmates, make friends, all of those normal things that you would find in a, in a course. It's 12 months long. We did a um, language upgrade course uh, initially. Then we did a foreign students course because we had students from America, from uh, Singapore, China, Bangladesh, other countries there as well. And then we did the course itself. And then I got to stay on for a few months uh, prior to graduation where I worked in the Australian Embassy in the defence section there for a while. So I got a good exposure to what we are doing uh, nationally uh, in that space, but also looking at the whole of... Um, how, how the ties operate, work, etc. So it was a very, very interesting course. And have you continued to maintain relationships with Thailand? Is it still a place that has significance for you? Absolutely. Thailand's an amazing, uh, amazing place. I still have friends from my course uh, who have continued on in their career. In fact, I was back over there, you know, supporting Army in, uh, in a program recently where one of my classmates was the uh, the senior officer over there so we were able to catch up have dinner and, and talk about a number of things uh, it was very very good fun uh, i do love thailand i think anyone who's been there loves it um, my wife is uh, is thai uh, so that makes it uh, i guess a little bit more uh, connected for me and uh, so i do visit fairly regularly Tell us how your career then panned out in a military sense after you'd completed Command and Staff College because you went on to work for the United Nations in um, Côte d'Ivoire, but as a civilian. And I'm interested to know a little bit about that. After I returned from Thailand, I worked in um, Army personnel for a while, so in career management. 
and then from there I was promoted into a position working uh, in strategic logistics and uh, and support to operations. At the time, the Afghanistan conflict was just beginning and it was still very low key. So I worked in there for a while, but at that stage I'd also completed 20 years of service and I was looking personally to move into uh, another career doing something externally. And so I parted company with Army on a full-time basis on very good terms and with a vow to continue my uh, service in the reserves. I was offered a role in the United Nations to set up, oddly enough, another food contract based on my previous performance in Rwanda. I still had a lot of friends in the United Nations. I was offered a role in Cote d'Ivoire of the Ivory Coast over on the west coast of Africa, which is a, a beautiful tropical country. So I took it with a view to aiding my transition out of army, to thinking about being a civilian, to to talking differently, to working with people who had different interests, etc. So I did that as a very distinct move um, and break to give myself that uh, disconnection, that instant disconnection. And, and that worked out really, really well for me. I, I spent uh, nine months over there, uh, set up the operation, um, and I'm happy to say that that one was a, a successful operation uh, as well. They they recovered well and have uh, as a country and have uh, continued on. So that that's that was my, my aim over there. It, it was a beautiful spot. I really enjoyed it. And logistically, I found based on my experience and my previous knowledge of Africa the way that we set up the logistic support for that was a lot smoother, uh, much, much smoother than the uh, previous operations. You mentioned then at this time in your life, what was key was that you were transitioning into a civilian environment. You then went on to work extensively in defence industries. What do you think was a defining aspect with regard to applying those military skills, military leadership in the civilian world? The lessons that you bring out of it, I think very clearly are your organisational ability, your thought process, uh, which has, you know, becomes ingrained in you uh, over time in the military, which others who haven't had that training and that understanding once you lay it out for them they they suddenly see things a lot clearer your ability to finish things on time your ability to uh to work with others to get information to make projects happen on time uh i think all of those things are really really important in in transitioning to and and being able to talk about them as being important when you're uh, when you're looking for jobs outside the military Now, today, you're increasingly involved in welfare for veterans and veterans' families. Tell us a bit about that work and why it's so important to you. One of the areas I'm involved with at the moment is the Defence Force Welfare Association. I'm the president of the uh, South Australian branch and looking to provide the detailed information to support veterans, both uh, influencing policy at government decision, at government level, and how decisions are made that will have that broader effect on uh, on veteran welfare. That particular um, organisation has been around for a very long time and is widely respected. And uh, being able to provide more information, more research into 
issues that affect veterans, I think, is, is really, really important. So that's what we're trying to do here in South Australia to support the, uh, the national body. Now, having been a, a senior leader in Army, I don't think you can get away from your responsibility to continue to look after the welfare of others in civilian life as they transition and as uh, you know as i have that responsibility doesn't go away it is still there you still need to think about it you still need to contribute to it uh, wherever you can and support others uh, who are doing similar things so sometimes it's not always me sometimes it's in my organization sometimes it's me supporting others and others interests uh, simply by being there by providing support on social media uh, or in encouraging others to be involved as well. Now, in addition to the work that you're doing in the welfare space, you're also involved with the Remembrance Driveway. Now, for people listening to Life on the Line, they might not be familiar with the driveway, where it's located and why it's important. So could you give us a bit of background? The Remembrance Driveway been around now for about 68 years. It was first decided that there should be a, a living memorial to those who had served in World War II originally. It was decided that it would be a series of trees and groves and memorial sites in New South Wales. And, and the site was chosen for the beginning piece, which was Macquarie Place in, uh, in Sydney. And it stretches down the, uh, the highway to Canberra and finishes at the back of the Australian War Memorial. And so there are a number of Victoria Cross rest areas which were then implemented and they still exist today. And so the council looks after those uh, sites, uh, any other memorials which are along the driveway. The road itself has changed over time and is now the freeway. So there are still some uh, memorial plantings um, done by the various um garden societies etc through um through new south wales who look after them and uh, and so incorporating those in the remembrance uh driveways is, is all part of it so we're looking at um not just maintaining it but how do we then enhance it enhance people's knowledge of it uh gain greater recognition for an awareness of the uh victoria cross rest areas and that if people uh, visit them then they they learn a little bit more about them again. So it's around signage and updating signage and making sure that the places are, are well curated. We work with uh, Transport for New South Wales and um, the group from Canberra as well, make sure that every, all of these areas are, are taken care of. So it's a dedicated group who come from different backgrounds uh, who work on the council, but the council's work is to maintain the intent for this living memorial to uh, not just those who served in World War II now, but for, for everybody who has served. So you mentioned a living memorial. So for people unfamiliar with the Remembrance Driveway, if they were to drive from Sydney to Canberra, what can they expect to see on that driveway? So there's a number of uh, avenues of trees, there's, there's plantings, there's small memorials, um, the Victoria Cross rest areas, uh, which I mentioned, and we're developing new ones for those as well. We'll be doing one next year for Keith Payne VC, and a site's been chosen. We're working with uh, Ampol, the developer. It'll be at one of their uh, rest areas. So 
that's been we're, we're redoing one for the McKenna VC uh, rest area, as well as uh, ones for the uh, combined one for the uh, Victoria Cross recipients from the Afghanistan conflict. So for people who aren't familiar with the driveway and have just found out a bit more as a result of what you've just shared with us um, today, how can they get involved? Is it just a case of visiting or is there some other way they can support your work and the council's work in terms of respecting its unique style of remembrance? Visiting is probably the most important way that we'd like to see people making more use of the facilities of the rest areas, etc., on the driveway and taking the time to learn about the recipients of the Victoria Cross, as well as when they see a memorial or a, a signposted memorial that they might want to learn a bit more about that as well. We have a site, remembrancedriveway.org.au, where we have more information available to them. And we'd certainly like people to come in and have a look at that. And uh, if they wish to uh, contribute to the work that we're doing, then we'd certainly appreciate that too. Brigadier Mick Burgess, thank you so much for joining us on Life on the Line and, and sharing your experiences of, of some incredible overseas experiences in Africa, in Thailand, the wider region, and indeed back here in Australia. Thanks, Sharon. It's been my pleasure to be here. Thank you. I'm Sharon Muskeldare, and you've been listening to Life on the Line. For more stories from Rwanda in Season 1, Listen to the bonus episode, Minefields, with Hugh Remington. Even as we pulled up, the place was under ambush. There was a big standing shooting match against the tree line. Gave us a chance to get some nice specky sort of combat shots. In season two, listen to the veteran conversation, number 33, Tracy Smart. I'm sorry, sister. Um, we weren't able to save her, so she just passed, you know, a little while ago. And the nun burst into tears, so I then had to counsel the nun. In season three, number 66, James O'Hanlon. Because if they get distracted, they'll either get themselves killed or their mates killed. So that's where officers have to stand back and give them the environment or the circumstances where they can do their job. And in season four, number 80, Robin White. There were lots of children that we looked after who'd been injured horrifically with landmines. Find us on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.